Amen. Well, please do turn now uh, in your Bibles to Luke's uh, Gospel. Uh, Luke's Gospel, as we pick up uh, this morning, and chapter 4 and verse 14, and we'll read through verse 21. Luke chapter 4, verse 14, and we'll read through verse 21. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country. And He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up, and as was His custom, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. Well, in the book of Leviticus, as the Lord gave to the newly constituted nation of Israel the various laws that were to shape and mark their lives as the distinct people of God, redeemed by God and now united to Him as their benevolent King. In the midst of those laws that covered the whole of their lives, in Leviticus 25, Israel were given two particular laws that were to govern the rhythms and patterns of their lives. In the Ten Commandments, God had told Israel that the rhythm of their weeks was to be marked and governed by the weekly observance of the Sabbath. In Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10, they were told, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your midst. You remember the twin rationales for this day being the center point of their lives. Exodus 20, verse 11, because in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Deuteronomy 5, 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. It was a day that was to anchor their hearts to God, a day that was to interrupt their work and, and remind them that the Lord God was the ultimate context of their lives, that He was the one in whom they lived and moved and had their being. It was a day of grace to them, a day which caught their hearts and brought them back from the slip of idolatry, brought them back from that, 
that latent belief that, that they sustained their lives, that it was their labors that provided their daily bread, that it was their savvy and smarts that provided their success in life. This day was to be an anchor that tethered their wandering hearts, a day that humbled them afresh before God and reminded them again that they were the creatures and not the Creator that they had been made in the image and likeness of God and were called to imitate the pattern of life that He had established at creation. It humbled them. It reminded them that they had been captives in Egypt and that it was the Lord their God who had redeemed them. And so now everything in their lives was to be understood in the light of that great saving grace of God. It was a definitive day a day that brought their wandering hearts back again and again and again to remember that they were who they were only by the grace of God. It was a gospel day, a day that filled their hearts every seven days with grand thoughts of who they were now that they had been reconciled to the glorious and almighty God by the grace and mercy that He had shown to them. It was a sanctuary in time that disrupted the stresses and strains of life in a fallen world and brought them out, if even just for 24 hours, into a world of rest and worship. But in Leviticus 25, Israel were told that that sabbatical pattern was not just to punctuate their weeks. It was to punctuate their calendars. It was to punctuate the, the rhythm of the years of their lives as well. And so, in Leviticus 25, they were told that every seventh year, the whole land was to be granted a Sabbath. Leviticus 25, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses on Sinai and said to him, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits but in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest, uh, you sh uh, you, or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land, all its yield shall be for food. It was a year that the land was to be given rest, a year when the land was to lie fallow. It's good agricultural practice, a year to let the soil recover and and nutrients return, a year to disrupt the life cycle of, of pests. It was a year of rest that would result in better crops the other six years, but, but of course it was more than that. Remember the curse that God had brought upon Adam in the fall. Adam had been told that no longer would the plants of the field gladly give up their produce for the sustaining of life, but that because of Adam's sin, because of the corruption that sin had brought into the world, now humanity would have to fight against thorns and thistles, and then it would be by the sweat of their brows that bread would be obtained. 
There would be an enmity between mankind and the plants and the trees, and, and humanity would be required to use agriculture to force creation to give up its fruits. It was, as we saw last week, that curse that the abundant and fruitful garden had now, because of Adam's sin, been turned into a wilderness, and that by struggle, that wilderness would have to be tamed. But with this sabbatical year, did, did, you, did you hear it? There would be a sense of Eden regained. Leviticus 25, verse 6, the Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself, and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired worker, and for the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle, and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. On that year, the creation would be spared from the forced production of agriculture. The land itself would be given rest from that struggle for food. The land itself would be symbolically reminded of the world that it came from, and in this small way be released from that Romans 8 groaning under the weight of sin that had come into the world. But not only that, in that year, this land would again gladly give up its produce. For this year, a, a reprieve would be given not just to the land, but also to the laborers and even to the animals who were used to work it. They would be able to simply enjoy the fruit that the land bore for them. It was a gospel year, a year when the hearts of Israel would be drawn back to life as it was meant to be. A year when the hearts of Israel were to be drawn forward to that eager expectation of the life of the world to come. The life of the world that would be secured by the promised Redeemer who would, as God had promised, crush the head of evil and release the world from the weight of sin and, and renew that Eden that had been lost. But even that was not enough. In Leviticus 25, verse 8, Israel were further told, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you forty-nine years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. If the sabbatical year was to the weekly Sabbath, a Sabbath of Sabbaths, this 50th year was the ultimate Sabbath. This 50th year, this year of Jubilee, would be the closest thing that a fallen world could experience 
to the lifting of that fall. The closest thing that a fallen world could experience to the inauguration of that new world promised and foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament. On this year, on this year of Jubilee, you hear it, everything would be made right. To those who had suffered financial difficulties, who'd become impoverished to the point that they, that they were forced to sell their ancestral lands. On this year, that land would be restored to them. For those who had had to leave their allotted portion of the promised land to travel in search of work or to travel in search of a, a better life, or, or worse, those whose, whose difficulties had become so dire that their only way out had been to sell themselves into indentured servitude. On this year, the proclamation of release would go out, and they would all return home. One commentator said the year of Jubilee was to be a foretaste of the great day. All the Israelites would return to their own land, surrounded by their own families, having no debts, enjoying a year of Sabbath rest, looking forward to years of safety and prosperity in a land flowing with milk and honey, and living in soul-satisfying fellowship with their covenant Lord, the one they acknowledged as sovereign over the land and themselves. More than even the Sabbath year, this year, this 50th year, this year of Jubilee was to be a joyful celebration of how the Lord was overturning evil and bringing His people back to Eden. As that, as that ram's horn blasted out on the Day of Atonement, the call was to go out to all Israel that here was a year for justice. Here was a year for doing mercy and loving their God. That here was a year in which they were to revel in all that they had received from God, and that they were then likewise to extend grace and mercy to one another and dwell in wonderful harmony in the land that God had given to them. It was a glorious foretaste of the new world. But the heartbreaking thing is that it never happened. The heartbreaking thing is you will read your Old Testament through and through, and you will find no indication that there was ever a year of jubilee proclaimed in all Israel. You won't read of it in the historical books as they recount the life of Israel under Joshua and the elders, under the judges, under the kings. You won't read of it in any of the prophetic books of the Old Testament as they recounted the pattern of Israel and Judah's life. And you understand there is no way that if this incredible world and life-shifting year had been inaugurated, there is no way that it would pass without record. It would seem that as Israel's hearts were drawn away from the Lord by the very things that the Sabbath was intended to guard them from, 
As Israel's hearts were drawn away by the deceitfulness of riches and the flawed, even fatal belief that they had to secure their own destinies, as their hearts were drawn away, this year was neglected, it was ignored, perhaps deemed too impractical to ever be implemented. But it was never forgotten. The year of Jubilee still remained a central motif, a central theme in that eschatological hope of Israel, a central motif, a central theme in their understanding of what salvation was and what the Redeemer would do. Micah spoke of a day when every man would sit under his vine and under his fig, and no one would make them afraid evermore. That's jubilee imagery. Zechariah spoke similarly of a day when everyone in Israel would invite his neighbor to come under his vine and to come under his fig tree. That's Jubilee imagery, harmony in the land and resting under the abundance of the trees. They're images of abundance. They're, they're images of freedom from strife. Isaiah spoke of what he called the year of the Lord's favor, the Jubilee, when good news would be proclaimed to poor and the brokenhearted would be bound up and the captives would be set free and the prisoners would be released. He spoke of this day, this coming day of comfort for the mourning and afflicted, a day of joy and peace that would come through the Redeemer. The year of Jubilee might not have been observed. Israel might never have enjoyed this great year of liberty and restoration, this year of satisfaction and abundance and joy, but it still gripped their hearts and their, and their holy imaginations. It still framed their hope of a coming day when these things would not just be brought in for a year, but that this would be the new reality that the Messiah would establish for all of His people for all time. And so, as Jesus stands in the synagogue in Nazareth, and He opens the scroll to Isaiah 61, and He proclaims to the congregation that Isaiah's prophecy of the year of Jubilee, Isaiah's prophecy of the year of the Lord's favor was now fulfilled in Him. He was making an absolutely massive statement about the new reality that had been established by His coming into the world. Luke is carefully laying the groundwork for us. And all that He has shown us of Jesus, and, and all that He has shown us of the supporting characters so far, Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth and, and John, Luke has carefully built his case in our minds so that there is no mistake we now know who Jesus is. Right? Those opening three chapters have only heightened our expectation. They have, they have put us on the edge of our seats as we have waited to see the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. But now, as Luke brings us to sit and listen to Jesus as He publicly preaches, what is the first thing that Luke wants us to hear? Verse 
It is that the year of Jubilee has come in the arrival of Christ. And that's massive. And it gives shape to our understanding of what it means for Jesus to have come into the world. Right? When, when Matthew introduces us to the public ministry of Jesus in, in Matthew 4.17, he tells us that Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that is undoubtedly good news. In fact, it would not have surprised us if Luke had told us the same thing at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. That theme of Jesus being great David's greater son has run throughout everything that Jesus has, that Luke has told us about Jesus. In a sense, he has, we have already had established in our heads that in the arrival of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Those first three chapters, pounding that, that drum and, and with a, an almost rhythmic telling, Luke has been, has been drawing us to see that that long, longed-for but ever-elusive godly kingdom ruled over by a godly king and who perfectly provides for and protects his people has now come in Jesus' coming. It's essentially what Gabriel had told Mary, wasn't it? Chapter 1, verse 32, what is it that, that Gabriel says to Mary? That her son will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Luke, in a sense, has already established what Matthew wants to tell us in Matthew 4.17, that here is great David's greater son, that, that here the kingdom of heaven is now at hand. But as Luke brings us into the synagogue in Nazareth to hear Jesus preaching, and hear Jesus preaching Isaiah 61, you understand He's giving us a nuance to our understanding of what all that means. It doesn't just mean that Jesus has come in His Psalm 2 glory. He has. Right? Luke has already given us that imagery of the war of the worlds coming to bear in Christ's arrival. Right? Luke set Jesus' birth in the light of nefarious rulers. He set John's heralding ministry in the shadow of wicked men. He's just shown us Jesus go out to the wilderness and do battle with the devil, the, the very ruler, the authority, the, the, the cosmic power over this present darkness, the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly places, as Ephesians 6 calls the devil. We've seen this clash of the kingdoms. We've seen the kingdom of heaven come in with that Psalm 2 power, striking definitive blows against the, the powers of, of evil. But now, with this proclamation in the synagogue, it's, 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 if, as, it's as if, look, having, having told us what we're saved from, those powers of evil, He now wants to show us and get established in our minds what it is that Jesus is saving us to. And what we are saved to is this beautiful and wonderful world 
of peace and rest and harmony. A world in which all enmity is put aside and we are able to find rest for our souls. A world in which we do not have to fight for our lives any longer, but one in which we can just sit under our fig trees free and happy and healed and joyful and in the presence of our Lord, enjoying the favor of our Lord. It's what we long for, isn't it? You remember how C.S. Lewis so masterfully put it in mere Christianity? He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. We resonate with that, don't we? There are desires in us that nothing in this world can satisfy. Now, we try to satisfy them. We we try to use money to satisfy those desires, even if we don't have any. What is the compelling desire of so many who play the lottery, who play the Powerball and the Mega Millions week after week? For so many, it's the belief that if only we had that, then we'd be happy and we'd be settled and we'd be joyful. We try to use our health. For some of us, the the prospect of ending up in the hospital or ending up in a nursing home is the stuff of absolute nightmares. And we convince ourselves that if we're healthy and if we could just fight the aging, if we could just avoid disease, then we'd be okay and our hearts would be settled and satisfied. It's why the motifs of the elixir of life or the fountain of youth recurs again and again in the popular imaginations for year after year, century after century. It's not to get political, but it's, it's why COVID rocked so many people's worlds, because it seemed like an unstoppable foe that threatened to undermine their whole conception of security. We try to use our careers to to find this. We try to use religion to find this, convincing ourselves if only we do the right things in the right way at the right times, then we'll be okay. Convincing ourselves that if we try just a little bit harder, then we'd break through to some next level of holiness and hopefully their happiness. There's a whole wing of the Christian publishing industry that is built on that compelling desire. But in the end, we know that we can't fulfill it. Not here, not in this world, what our hearts crave. The security and satisfaction that our hearts crave can only be found in another world, in a better world, in a world that is free from sin and free from the effects of sin. What our hearts crave is something that can only be found in Eden. And what Jesus proclaims in the synagogue is that in His arrival, those deep longings of our hearts have found their answer. 
That as our glorious King, He has come not just to rescue us from our enemies, though wonderfully He has come to do that, but that He has come even more to, to bring us home, to bring us into His kingdom, to bring us into that wonderful reality of that, that, the, that the year of the Jubilee pointed to. It is the glorious good news that in Jesus Christ we are lifted up out of the enmity and strife of this world, and we are brought into a place of peace and joy and happiness because, verse 19, in Him we are brought into the favor of the Lord. You see, that is actually our greatest and deepest desire. We think so superficially. Yet if only we could improve our circumstances, then we'd be okay. But Jesus says He's come to, to bring us into a far greater reality. He has come to secure for us the favor of God, and it is that which changes everything. As Jesus stands in the synagogue, what's He preaching? He's, he's preaching propitiation. That, that while in our sin, God is our enemy. In Christ, united to Christ by our faith in Him, He has secured the favor of God for us. God is propitious towards us in Christ. It's Romans 3, verse 22, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Christian, understand what Jesus is saying. Through His life and death and resurrection and ascension, you have been brought into a new world. He has brought you into a world in which the guilt of your sins has been washed away. A world in which God has, has covenanted, God has, has promised you, Christian, that He will forget your sins and remember them no more. A world in which he has, he has promised to cast away the guilt of your sin as far from you as the east is from the west, so that there is now no chance that the guilt of your sin would ever be brought up again. No chance that on the judgment day, as you stand before the, the throne of God, there's no chance that an, an angelic bureaucrat will come running from the archives holding a piece of paper saying, I found a record of their sin." It's not there anymore. If you are in Christ, all of the guilt of your sin has been forgotten by God, and He remembers it no more. To use the imagery of the psalm, He has taken it and He has buried it in the depths of the sea. Jesus is saying, for those who have faith in Him, that favor of the Lord has been secure. If you are in Christ, you, 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 are, you are God's. You, you belong to Him. You are His child. He, he loves you with the unshakable love of a father, and you are now secure in His presence. You have that, that security that we sang of, that security of the sparrow and the swallow who have, who have built their nests in the temple of the Lord. 
You have been released from your sins, and, and in that you have been brought into this glorious new reality, this wonderful new world. Now, obviously, this new world still awaits its, its consummation. We still wait long for the day when, when Christ will return and make all things new. When the new heavens and the new earth will be established and all of sin in all places will be wiped away for all time and there will be no more effects of sin that we will have to bear at all. But, but understand, Christian, Jesus says this is the present reality, not just the future reality. Your experience of this new world does not, does not wait. This is the reality in which you live now. How, how does Paul go on to describe it in, in Romans 5? We've heard from him in Romans 3, now in Romans 5. As he builds his argument, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, you hear how that picks up on that language we just read. Since we have been justified by faith, what's the result? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him also we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And, and Paul, what is the effect of it? Well, verse 3, we are now able to rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that even suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is the, that is the mental and emotional shift that Jesus Christ brings to you, Christian, that in all things you are able to rejoice. If you have peace with God, then all else falls by the wayside. This is what lies behind Jesus saying to His disciples, saying to us in John 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Or it's what lies behind that even more blunt command of our Lord earlier in John 14, verse 1. What is it that He says to His disciples? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. Christian, there is no reason in the world for your heart to be troubled. Now that you have peace with God, the motto of your life now in this glorious new reality of the Lord's favor in which the good news of your emancipation from sin is being proclaimed, in which your eyes have come to see the manifold, merciful glory of God, in which you have been given a new heart of faith to lay hold of Jesus Christ, in this glorious new reality, in this jubilee that has come to you in Christ, the motto of your life is Psalm 56, 11. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. It's Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. It's Hebrews 13, 6, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. Now, I know that that's not easy. 
I know how anxiety and worry can grip our hearts. And those Romans 5 sufferings are still sufferings. And the circumstances of life in this fallen world can still loom large. But Christian, do not let this glorious good news die the death of a thousand qualifications. This is the good news of the gospel to you in Jesus Christ. The year of the Lord's favor has been proclaimed. The jubilee is at hand. Rejoice in it. Rest in it. Love it. Preach it to yourself. Preach it to others. In Jesus Christ, the greatest desire of your heart has come to bear. Let us pray.